Last summer, at a pioneer parade in Wyoming, I saw a young colt separated from its mother. The lost youngster whinnied and trotted about, listening to a chorus of voices as it sought the voice that would guide it back to the side of the one it loved. At other times, I've seen lambs lost in a moving herd of sheep. A great chorus of voices rises from the herd, but each lamb listens for the one voice that can guide it. The Savior used this ageless example in the allegory of the Good Shepherd. The sheep hear his voice, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, for they know not the voice of strangers. From the chorus of voices we hear in mortality, we must recognize the voice of the Good Shepherd who calls us to follow him toward our heavenly home. As Paul said to the Corinthians, There are so many kinds of voices in the world, and none of them is without signification. Some voices speak of the things of the world, providing the useful information we need to make our way in mortality. I will make no further reference to these voices. My remarks will refer to those voices that speak of God, of His commandments, and of the doctrines, ordinances, and practices of His Church. Some of those who speak on these subjects have been called and given divine authority to do so. Others, whom I choose to call alternate voices, speak on these subjects without calling or authority. In the five years since I was called as a general authority, I have seen many instances where Church leaders and members have been troubled by things said by these alternate voices. I am convinced that some are confused about the Church's relationship to the alternate voices. As a result, members can be misled in their personal choices, and the work of the Lord can suffer. Some alternate voices are those of well-motivated men and women who are merely trying to serve their brothers and sisters and further the cause of Zion. Their efforts fit within the Lord's teaching that His servants should not have to be commanded in all things but should be anxiously engaged in a good cause and do many things of their own free will and bring to pass much righteousness. Other alternate voices are pursuing selfish personal interests such as property, pride, prominence, or power. Other voices are the bleatings of lost souls who cannot hear the voice of the shepherd and trot about trying to find their way without his guidance. Some of these voices call out guidance for others, the lost leading the lost. Some alternate voices are of those whose avowed or secret object is to deceive and devour the flock. The Good Shepherd warned, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. In both the Bible and the Book of Mormon, the Savior charged His shepherds to watch over and protect the flock from such wolves. There have always been alternate voices whose purpose or effect is to deceive. It is part of the plan. The prophet Lehi taught that there must needs be an opposition in all things. And there have always been other alternate voices whose purpose or effect is unselfish and wholesome. In most instances, alternate voices are heard in the same kinds of communications the Church uses to perform its mission. The Church has magazines and other official publications, a newspaper supplement, letters from Church leaders, general conferences, and regular meetings and conferences in local units. Similarly, alternate voices are heard in magazines, journals, and newspapers, and at lectures, symposia, and conferences. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints does not attempt to isolate its members from alternate voices. Its approach, as counseled by the Prophet Joseph Smith, is to teach correct principles and then leave its members to govern themselves by personal choices. Of course, the Church does have a responsibility to point out what is the voice of the Church and what is not. This is especially necessary when some alternate voice, deliberately or inadvertently, communicates a message in a way that implies Church sponsorship or acquiescence. For the same reason, the Church does approve or disapprove those publications that are to be published or used in the official activities of the Church, general or local. For example, we have procedures to ensure approved content 
for materials published in the name of the Church or used for instruction in its classes. These procedures can be somewhat slow and cumbersome, but they have an important benefit. They provide a spiritual quality control that allows members to rely on the truth of what is said. Members who listen to the voice of the Church need not be on their guard against being misled. They have no such assurance for what they hear from alternate voices. Local Church leaders also have a responsibility to review the content of what is taught in classes or presented in worship services, as well as the spiritual qualifications of those they use as teachers or speakers. Leaders must do all they can to avoid express or implied Church endorsement for teachings that are not orthodox or teachers who will use their position or prominence to promote something other than gospel truth. Church leaders are sometimes invited to state the Church's position at a debate or symposium about some doctrine, ordinance, or practice of the Church. This kind of presentation gives an audience the benefit of whatever illumination results from the adversarial clash of opposing viewpoints. Representatives of a business organization, a political party, or a social action group might welcome such an invitation, but the Church is directed to avoid disputation and contention. Moreover, if a representative of the Church participated in such an event, this could have the unwanted effect of encouraging Church members to look to the sponsors of alternate voices to bring them information on the positions of the Church. Members of the Church are free to participate or listen to any alternate voices they choose, but Church leaders should avoid official involvement directly or indirectly. There are disadvantages to official non-participation in events where Church doctrines, ordinances, or practices are discussed. In some instances, the overall presentation will be decidedly inaccurate or unfair because the position of the Church and the knowledge of its leaders are not presented. In other instances, a volunteer will step forward to present what he or she considers to be the Church's position. These volunteers are sometimes well-informed and capable, and they contribute to a balanced presentation. Sometimes they are not, and their contribution makes matters worse. When attacked by error, truth is better served by silence than by a bad argument. In any case, volunteers do not speak for the Church. As long as Church leaders feel they should not participate in an event where the Church or its doctrines are discussed, the overall presentation will be incomplete and unbalanced. In such circumstances, no one should think that the Church's silence constitutes an admission of facts asserted in that setting. Individual members of the Church may also confront difficult questions when they are invited to participate. The question is more complicated when the invitation does not relate to a publication or a lecture on a single subject, but to a group of articles, a series of publications, or a conference or symposium with a large number of subjects. One article or one issue of a publication or one session of a conference may be edifying and uplifting something a faithful Latter-day Saint would wish to support or enjoy. But another article or another session may be destructive, something a faithful Latter-day Saint would not wish to support or promote. Some of life's most complicated decisions involve mixtures of good and evil. To what extent can one seek the benefit of something good one desires when this can only be done by simultaneously promoting something bad one opposes? That is a personal decision but it needs to be made with a sophisticated view of the entire circumstance and with a prayer for heavenly guidance. There are surely limits at which every faithful Latter-day Saint would draw the line. For example, in my view, a person who has made covenants in the Holy Temple would not make his or her influence available to support or promote a source that publishes or discusses the temple ceremonies even if other parts of the publication or program are unobjectionable. I would not want my support or my name used to further a public discussion of things I have covenanted to hold sacred. As Latter-day Saints consider their personal relationship to various alternate voices, they will be helped by considering the ways we acquire knowledge, 
especially knowledge of sacred things. In modern revelation, the Lord has told us to seek learning by study and also by faith. We seek learning by studying the accumulated wisdom of various disciplines and by using the powers of reasoning placed in us by our Creator. We should also seek learning by faith in God, the giver of revelation. I believe that many of the great discoveries and achievements in science and the arts have resulted from a God-given revelation. Seekers who have paid the price in perspiration have been magnified by inspiration. The acquisition of knowledge by revelation is an extra bonus to seekers in the sciences and the arts, but it is the fundamental method for those who seek to know God and the doctrines of His gospel. In this area of knowledge, scholarship and reason are insufficient. A seeker of truth about God must rely on revelation. I believe this is what the Book of Mormon prophet meant when he said, To be learned is good if they hearken unto the counsels of God. It is surely what the Savior taught when he said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. The way to revelation is righteousness. Marveling at the Master's teachings, his enemies ask, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. The Book of Mormon teaches that those who diligently seek shall have the mysteries of God unfolded unto them by the power of the Holy Ghost. The prophet Jacob declared the impossibility of uninspired man's understanding God. No man knoweth of his ways, save it be revealed unto him. Wherefore, brethren, despise not the revelations of God. The Lord's prescribed methods of acquiring sacred knowledge are very different from the methods used by those who acquire learning exclusively by study. For example, a frequent technique of scholarship is debate or adversarial discussion a method with which I have had considerable personal experience. But the Lord has instructed us in ancient and modern scriptures that we should not contend over the points of His doctrine. Those who teach the gospel are instructed not to preach with wrath or strife, but in mildness and meekness, reviling not against revilers. Similarly, techniques devised for adversary debate or to search out differences and work out compromises are not effective in acquiring gospel knowledge. Gospel truths and testimony are received from the Holy Ghost through reverent personal study and quiet contemplation. In the scriptures, the Lord has specified how we learn by faith. We must be humble, cultivate faith, repent of our sins, serve our fellow men, and keep the commandments of God. As the Book of Mormon says, Yea, he that repenteth and exerciseth faith and bringeth forth good works and prayeth continually without ceasing, unto such it is given to know the mysteries of God. I have seen some persons attempt to understand or undertake to criticize the gospel or the church by the method of reason alone, unaccompanied by the use or recognition of revelation. When reason is adopted as the only or even the principal method of judging the gospel, the outcome is predetermined. One cannot find God or understand His doctrines and ordinances by closing the door on the means He has prescribed for receiving the truths of His gospel. That is why gospel truths have been corrupted and gospel ordinances have been lost when left to the interpretation and sponsorship of scholars who lack the authority and reject the revelations of God. That is what the Savior told His professional critics, as recorded in the eleventh chapter of Luke. He was confronted by a group who had hypocritically built monuments to the prophets their predecessors had murdered, while personally rejecting the living prophets God was sending them. In what I understand to be a condemnation of their rejection of revelation, The Savior pronounced woe upon these worldly professionals. For ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in ye hindered. 
The early leaders of the restored church had to learn that same truth. In several revelations, the Lord rebuked Joseph Smith, David Whitmer, and others for not having their minds on the things of God, for yielding to the persuasions of men, and for being persuaded by those whom I have not commanded. The correct relationship between study and faith in the receipt of sacred knowledge is illustrated in Oliver Cowdery's attempt to translate ancient records. He failed because he took no thought but only asked God. The Lord told him he should have studied it out in his mind and then ask if it was right. Only then would the Lord reveal whether the translation was correct or not. And only on receiving that revelation could the text be written because you cannot write that which is sacred save it be given you from me. In the acquisition of sacred knowledge, scholarship and reason are not alternatives to revelation. They are a means to an end, and the end is revelation from God. God has promised that if we ask Him, we will receive revelation upon revelation, knowledge upon knowledge, that we may know the mysteries and peaceable things, that which bringeth joy, that which bringeth life eternal. In our day, we are experiencing an explosion of knowledge about the world and its people. But the people of the world are not experiencing a comparable expansion of knowledge about God and His plan for His children. On that subject, what the world needs is not more scholarship and technology, but more righteousness and revelation. I long for the day prophesied by Isaiah when the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. In an inspired utterance, the prophet Joseph Smith described the Lord's pouring down knowledge from heaven upon the heads of the Latter-day Saints. This will not happen for those whose hearts are set so much upon the things of this world and aspire to the honors of men. Those who fail to learn and use principles of righteousness will be left to themselves to kick against those in authority, to persecute the saints, and to fight against God. In contrast, the Lord makes this great promise to the faithful. The doctrine of the priesthood shall distill upon thy soul as the dews from heaven. The Holy Ghost shall be thy constant companion, and thy scepter an unchanging scepter of righteousness and truth. And thy dominion shall be an everlasting dominion, and without compulsory means it shall flow unto thee forever and ever. I testify of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Brethren, one of the most important invitations ever issued to us and to all mankind is to come unto Christ and be perfected in Him. How do we do that? One of the most beautiful and important ways is through the ordinance of the sacrament. The Lord instituted the sacrament as we know it today during what we commonly call the Last Supper. In one sense, it was the Last Supper, but in another, it was the First Supper, the beginning of many spiritual feasts. The resurrected Lord instructed the Book of Mormon people, Ye shall break bread and bless it, and give it unto the people of my church, unto those who shall believe in my name. And this shall ye always observe to do, even as I have done. And this shall ye do in remembrance of my body, which I have shown unto you. And it shall be a testimony unto the Father that ye do always remember me. And if ye do always remember me, ye shall have my spirit to be with you. The moving tenderness and deep significance of this transcendent event is still available to us today. But we must do as they did and follow the doctrine of Christ, which is to believe in Jesus, rely on Him, repent of our sins, take His name upon us by being baptized in His Church, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, and faithfully follow Him all of our lives. He knows we need much help to do this, so He provides that the ordinance of the sacrament be repeated often. The, this invitation of the Savior to come unto Him through the sacrament is issued regularly and is universal. 
Everyone is included. Men, women, and children, old and young alike, participate. None are barred except by themselves. The Lord said, And ye see that I have commanded that none of you should go away, but rather have commanded that ye should come unto me. But the Lord, who knows the terrible consequences of hypocrisy, also warned, Ye shall not suffer anyone knowingly to partake of my flesh and blood unworthily. For whoso eateth and drinketh my flesh and blood unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to his soul. What does it mean to partake of the sacrament worthily, or how do we know if we are unworthy? If we have desires to improve, which is to repent, and are not under priesthood restriction, then, in my opinion, we are worthy. If, however, we have no desire to repent and improve, if we have no intention of following the guidance of the Spirit, we must ask, are we worthy to partake, or are we making a mockery of the very purpose of the sacrament, which is to act as a catalyst for personal repentance and improvement? If we remember the Savior and all He has done and will do for us, we will improve our actions and thus come closer to Him, which keeps us on the road to eternal life. If, however, we refuse to repent and improve, if we do not remember Him and keep His commandments, then we have stopped our growth, and that is damnation to our souls. The sacrament is an intensely personal experience, and we are the ones who knowingly are worthy or otherwise. Do you remember the feeling you had when you were baptized? That sweet, clean feeling of a pure soul, having been forgiven, washed clean through the merits of the Savior? If we partake of the sacrament worthily, we can feel that way regularly, for we renew that covenant which includes His forgiveness, if we only will. Those who would deny themselves the blessing of the sacrament by not attending sacrament meeting or by not thinking of the Savior during the services surely must not understand the great opportunity to be forgiven, to have His Spirit to guide and comfort them. What more could anyone ask? As we worthily partake of the sacrament, we will sense those things we need to improve in and receive the help and determination to do so. No matter what our problems, the sacrament always gives hope. Most of these problems we must work out ourselves. For example, if we aren't paying our tithing, we simply determine to start doing so. But for some problems, we must see the bishop. The Spirit will let us know which. During, doing what the Spirit dictates always results in blessings. Let me give an example. Some years ago, a young couple, we will call the Jones, visited with their bishop about a problem the wife had had. The details are not important, but through the direction of the Spirit, the bishop's decision was that, among other things, Sister Jones would not partake of the sacrament for a period of time while she worked out some attitudes and problems. With lots of love and support, she continued to attend meeting with her family and few but her husband and the bishop were aware of the situation or even noticed that week after week she did not partake of the sacrament. At first, she didn't feel much difference. But as time went on, she became more and more desirous to be worthy to partake of the sacrament. She thought she had repented before, but as the real soul-searching deepened and as her desire to worthily partake of the sacrament increased, True, fundamental changes began to take place in her life and in her actions and in her thinking. More time passed. Finally, during one sacrament meeting, the Spirit again bore witness to the bishop and to Brother and Sister Jones that the time had come for her to again partake of the sacrament. Next Sunday, the bishop said. Next Sunday came, and Sister Jones sat again with her family, nervous yet excited and full of anticipation. Am I really worthy? how I want to be. The sacrament hymn was more meaningful than ever. She sang with such feeling that it was difficult to hold back the tears. And the sacrament prayers, how profound! She listened so intently that every word sunk deep into her soul. Take His name. Always remember Him. Keep His commandments. Always have His Spirit. Oh, how I desire this! 
The deacons began to move up and down the aisles, and the trays were passed from person to person across the rows. As one young deacon got closer and closer to her row, her heart began to pound harder and harder. Then the tray was coming down her very row. Now her husband was holding the tray in front of her. Tears streamed down her face. There was a barely audible sob of joy as she reached for the emblem of the Lord's love for her. The congregation did not hear the sob, but they did notice the tears in the bishop's eyes. Life and hope and forgiveness and spiritual strength had been given and received. No one could be more worthy. Sister Jones truly wanted to have his spirit. She wanted to take his name upon her. With all her heart, she wanted to remember him and keep his commandments. She wanted to repent, to improve, and to follow the guidance of his spirit. Think of it. Think of what could and should happen in your life, in your ward, in your state, in the whole church, in the whole world, if every Sunday individuals, hundreds, thousands, even millions, under the authority of the priesthood of God, took the sacrament worthily and thus repented and determined sincerely to better follow the guidance of the Lord's Spirit. The life that would be given, the forgiveness that would be obtained, the spiritual strength that would be received, the light that would thus be generated would cause Zion to shine forth brilliantly and would prepare a people pure in heart, ready for the Lord's second coming in a way that will be marvelous to behold. Brethren, as leaders, we must do more to have more people attend sacrament meeting and partake of the sacrament with more worthiness. We must teach more fully, with deeper feeling and greater power, the doctrine of Christ as embodied in the sacrament. You young men must be worthy and realize what a privilege you have to pass the bread and water, the emblems of the Lord's love for all of us. Think of the blessings you offer—hope, love, joy, forgiveness, freedom, and everlasting life. What a contrast to so many youth who today pass other types of white substances and other kinds of liquids that bring gloom and failure, captivity and death in the deceitful guise of happiness. Oh, the goodness and mercy of our God as He overcomes the cunning of the evil one. I testify from the depths of my soul that these principles are true. Jesus did suffer and die for us. Through Him and only through Him can we have life and the joy thereof, both in time and in eternity? I love the Savior. I feel that as He hung upon the cross and looked out over that dark scene, He saw more than mocking soldiers and cruel taunters. He saw more than crying women and fearful friends. He remembered and saw even more than women at wells or crowds on hills or throngs by seashores. He saw more, much more. He who knows all and has all power saw through the stream of time his huge, magnanimous, loving soul encompassed all eternity and took in all people and all times and all sins and all forgiveness and all everything. Yes, he saw down to you and to me and provided us an all-encompassing opportunity to escape the terrible consequences of death and sin. And even as He suffered for all of us, He voiced that most beautiful of all requests, Father, forgive them. We must do our part and cry with full fervor of soul, Father, forgive me through the merits of Thy beloved Son as I partake of these emblems of His broken body and spilt blood for me, please, Father, through Him, forgive me. Help me to do better. All life as we know it comes about through the joining of two separate elements, each necessary. The Savior, through His infinite Atonement, provides that vital element for us. He asks us to provide the other element, even a broken heart and a contrite spirit, for He will not force us. Think of the symbolism. Think of the power for bringing about a newness of life by worthily partaking of the sacrament.
I testify that God our Father lives. I testify that Jesus is the Christ. I know He lives. I know He forgives. I know He loves. I know He smiles tenderly, pleadingly. I know He stands ready to help us. I know He guides and directs and blesses with unutterable blessings and unspeakable treasures of eternity. I know He gives knowledge of eternally important things if we desire. I know that worthily partaking of the sacrament is of eternal importance to Him and to us. Yes, I know He gives life in all of its depth of meaning. As the emblems of His love are regularly presented before us, please let us hear, Father, forgive them, and respond, Father, forgive me. This is life, eternal life. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. President Benson, on behalf of the youth around the world, we thank you for your inspiring example. I speak to you who want to do right, to you who have had those stirrings in your heart to live worthily, no matter what others may say, and to you who want to have such feelings. You are the, the finest generation that has ever come to earth. We're proud of you. I have a burning desire to communicate truths which, if understood and lived, will fundamentally change your life. I ask you to help me. Will you listen with your mind and heart that my prayer that you will be helped can be answered? For a piece of wood to catch fire, it must first be heated to a temperature where it ignites, then burns by itself. The initial heating requires energy from outside. When it is ignited, it becomes self-sustaining and gives beneficial light and heat. For you, the early years of life are often spent in absorbing help from parents and others. As you prepare for the time, you can be more self-sufficient. I want to help you catch fire spiritually, that you may enjoy the marvelous experience of radiating strength to others while you continue to develop yourself. There is a more intense fire than that of burning wood. It is produced from a mixture of aluminum, powder, and metal oxide. By itself, it is cold and lifeless. But when heated to the ignition temperature, it becomes a self-sustaining source of brilliant light and intense heat. Once it ignites, it cannot be put out by ordinary means. It will burn under water or in other environments that extinguish an ordinary flame. When it burns, it does not depend on its surroundings for support. It is self-sufficient. The spiritual flame, flame in some is easily quenched by the world around them. Yet others live so as to be strengthened and nurtured by the Lord. They not only overcome the temptations of the world, their unquenchable spirit enriches the lives of others around them. Two missionaries who were aflamed spiritually had spent an active day establishing a branch of the Church in a remote village. At 5.30 that morning, they had taught a family before the husband left for the fields. Later, they had struggled to plaster the adobe walls to keep out blood-sucking insects. During the week, they had laid a cement floor and hung a five-gallon can with a shower head to keep clean. They had begun a sanitation facility and put new gravel and sand in their water filter. For part of the day, they had worked beside men in the fields to later teach them. They were exhausted and ready for a welcome rest. There came an anxious knock at the crude wooden door. A small girl was crying. She had been running and was gasping for air. They struggled to piece together her message delivered amid sobs and a torrent of words. 
Her father had suffered a severe head injury while riding his donkey in the darkness. She knew he would die unless the elders saved his life. Men of the village were at this moment carrying him to the missionaries. She pled for her father's life, then ran to help him. The seriousness of their desperate situation began to engulf them. They were in a remote village with no doctors or medical facilities. There were no telephones. The only means of communication was a rough road up a riverbed, and they had no vehicle. The people of the valley trusted them. They were not trained in medicine. They did not know how to care for a serious head wound. But they knew someone who did. They knelt in prayer and explained their problem to an understanding Father in Heaven. They pled for guidance, realizing that they could not save a life without His help. They felt impressed that the wound should be cleansed, closed, and the man given a blessing. One companion asked, How will he stand the pain? How can we cleanse the wound and bless him when he is in such suffering? They knelt again and explained to their father, We have no medicine. We have no anesthetic. Please help us to know what to do. Please bless him, Father. As they arose, friends arrived with the injured man. Even in the subdued candlelight, they could see he had been severely hurt. He was suffering greatly. As they began to cleanse the wound, a very unusual thing occurred. He fell asleep. Carefully, anxiously, they finished the cleansing, closed the wound, and provided a makeshift bandage. As they laid their hands on his head to bless him, he awoke peacefully. Their prayer had been answered and his life saved. The trust of the people increased and a branch of the Church flourished. The missionaries were able to save a life because they trusted the Lord. They knew how to pray with faith for help with a problem they could not resolve themselves. Because they were obedient to the Lord, the Lord trusted them and answered their prayer. They had learned how to recognize the answer when it came as a quiet prompting of the Spirit. You have that same help available to you as you live for it. The, the Savior said, And whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, which is right, believing that ye shall receive, behold, it shall be given unto you. Two young missionaries were walking down a dusty road. In their hands they carried the scriptures, and in each heart burned a desire to share truth. They saw on the ridge of a hill a group of horsemen laughing and pointing toward them. They sensed they were in severe danger. Each prayed for help as a huge man on a powerful horse galloped down the hill toward them. His menacing whip slashed the air and cracked threateningly. He thundered closer. The sneer on his face communicated his cruel intent to harm them. Suddenly, he reined in his horse, paused, whirled, and disappeared down the valley. These elders trusted in the Lord and were living worthily. He therefore could protect them against danger they were helpless to avoid. Your determination to live righteously will make it possible for you to be protected from the dangers that surround you. I know that each one of you faces overwhelming challenges. Sometimes they are so concentrated, so unrelenting, that you may feel they are beyond your capacity to control. Don't face the world alone. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In many ways the world is like a jungle with dangers that can harm or mutilate your body, enslave or destroy your mind, or decimate your morality. It was intended that life be a challenge, 
not so that you would fail, but that you might succeed through overcoming. You face on every hand difficult but vitally important decisions. There is an array of temptations, destructive influences, and camouflaged dangers the like of which no previous generation has faced. I am persuaded that today no one, no matter how gifted, strong, or intelligent, will avoid serious problems without seeking the help of the Lord. I repeat, don't face the world alone. Trust in the Lord. If one of you has seriously sinned, repent now. It is not good to violate the commandments of the Lord. It is worse to do nothing about it. Sin is like cancer in the body. It will never heal itself. It will become progressively worse unless cured through the medicine of repentance. You can be made completely whole, new, purified, and clean every whit through the miracle of repentance. Trust in the Lord. He knows what He's doing. He already knows of your problems and he's waiting for you to ask for help. Has one of you ever had the feeling you're walking alone down a dark tunnel that gets ever more depressing? No one seems to care. Life gets more and more complicated and discouraging. You may have been following a path many others have trod. It often begins with self-pity, then self-indulgence, and if not checked, to gross selfishness. Unless overcome by serving others, selfishness leads to serious sin with its depressing feelings and binding chains. It is the crowbar Satan uses to open a heart to temptation to destroy agency. He would bind mind and body through crippling habits and separate one from our Father in Heaven and His Son by cultivating selfishness. If you've had such feelings of depression, turn around. Literally, turn your life around. The other end of the tunnel is filled with light. No matter where you've been or what you have done, that light is always available to you. Satan will try to convince you that you've gone too far to be saved. That is a lie. You will need some help to get started. The scriptures are a good place to begin. A father, mother, brother, sister, bishop, or friend will help. As you move nearer the light through repentance, you will feel better about yourself and more confident in your future. You will rediscover how wonderful life really is. The Savior gave His life that you and I can correct mistakes, even the most serious ones. His plan is perfect. It always works for each one that follows the rules. Getting through the hazards of life requires understanding, skill, experience, and self-assurance, like that required to sink a difficult basket under pressure. In the game of life, that is called righteous character. Such character is not developed in moments of great challenge or temptation. That is when it is used. Character is woven quietly from the threads of hundreds of correct decisions, like practice sessions. When strengthened by obedience and worthy acts, correct decisions form a fabric of character that brings victory in time of great need. Righteous character provides the foundation of spiritual strength that enables you to make difficult, extremely important decisions correctly when they seem overpowering. Righteous character is what you are. It is more important than what you own, what you have learned, or what you have accomplished. 
It allows you to be trusted. It opens the door to help from the Lord in moments of great challenge or temptation. Be honest. Righteous character is based on integrity. Never lie to yourself. A lie can give temporary advantage, but it brings with it long-term difficulties. When you are completely honest with yourself and measure your acts against what you know is right, you will not be dishonest with anyone. Moreover, you will make sure the Lord can bless you when you need it. When you are tempted to break a commandment and hide it from others, don't do it. It will always hurt you. Satan will see to that. He will make it known because he wants to destroy you. When you are alone with your friends, talk about doing good and being good. The feelings you will have, the promptings that will come to you, will powerfully motivate you for good. Those who do wrong and scheme to get away with it will never know such feelings. If you don't feel comfortable with the thought of discussing good with your friends, they are not your friends. Change them. Each one of us has a natural, powerful desire to be accepted, to be liked, to be somebody. Years ago I learned something of the price paid for trust and worthy recognition. During a summer break I found a job on an oyster boat in Long Island Sound. Four of us lived together in an area not much larger than the cab of a big semi-trailer. At first I was considered a spy for the owner, then a kid who didn't have courage to live like a man. They really gave me a bad time. Finally, when they understood I would not abandon my principles, we became friends. Then privately, one by one, they asked for help. You know what is right and wrong. Be the leader in doing right. At first you may not be understood. You may not have the friends you want right away. But in time they will respect you, then admire you. Many will come privately to receive strength from your spiritual flame. You can do it. I know you can do it. When your life complies with the will of the Lord and is in harmony with His teachings, the Holy Ghost is your companion in need. You will be able to be inspired by the Lord to know what to do. When needed, your efforts will be fortified with divine power. Like the missionaries, you can be protected and strengthened to do what alone would be impossible. As we have talked, some of you have been prompted by the Spirit about private things the Lord wants you to do something about. You have been impressed to know what to do. Those feelings are the very most important part of our time together. They are a personal message of the Lord to you. Remember that message. Follow it precisely now for your happiness. We love you and we trust you. The Lord needs you for His purposes. Live His commandments. Learn to follow the promptings of the Spirit. Keep your spiritual flame glowing brightly. I testify the Lord lives. He loves you and will help you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I rejoice in the historic action taken at this session of conference.
and with all my heart welcome the new 70s into the Brotherhood of the General Authorities. As President Hunter noted this morning, it is spring in the Northern Hemisphere. All nature is stirring, the grass is growing, the leaves are budding, the fruit trees are straining to blossom, lambs are being born, flowers are coming forth. We have celebrated the Easter season and have joined all Christendom to rejoice in the resurrection of the Savior from the tomb of death. It was a profoundly moving event those centuries ago when the Savior led his beloved disciples into the favored Garden of Gethsemane for the last time. Jesus was mindful of the great ordeal ahead of him. He agonized, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. He was ready for the unspeakable agony. Said he, The spirit is truly ready, but the flesh is weak. The eleven apostles no doubt sensed, but could not understand some portentous event that would happen. Jesus had spoken of leaving them. They knew that the Master whom they loved and depended upon was going somewhere, but where they did not know. They had heard him say, I will not leave you comfortless. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. It is of this Comforter that I wish to speak today. I do so because I am persuaded that there is a greater need for divine oversight in our lives today than ever before. I wish to testify that by the power and gift of the Holy Ghost, we can know what to do and what not to do to bring happiness and peace to our lives. Elder de Grand Richard stated, It must be understood that the Holy Ghost is the medium through whom God, His Son, and His Son, Jesus Christ, communicate with men and women upon the earth. All men are enlightened by the Spirit of God or the light of Christ, sometimes called conscience. Job stated, But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. This is the Spirit of God emanating from deity. This power of God is the means by which, as President Joseph F. Smith stated, every man is enlightened, the wicked as well as the good the intelligent and the ignorant, the high and the low, each according with his capacity to receive light. The gift of the Holy Ghost, however, in distinction from the Spirit of God, does not come to all men and women. The ministrations of the Holy Ghost are, however, limited without receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. The prophet Joseph Smith taught, There is a difference between the Holy Ghost and the gift of the Holy Ghost. Many outside the Church have received revelation from the Holy Ghost convincing them of the truth of the gospel. Cornelius, as well as many in attendance on the day of Pentecost, received the Holy Ghost before baptism. It is through this power that seekers after truth acquire a testimony of the Book of Mormon and the principles of the gospel. The gift of the Holy Ghost comes after repentance and becoming worthy. It is received after baptism by the laying on of hands by those who have authority. On the day of Pentecost, Peter answered those who had previously been touched spiritually by the Holy Ghost, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Those possessing the gift of the Holy Ghost can come to a greater light and testimony. The Holy Ghost bears witness of the truth and impresses upon the soul the reality of God the Father and the Son Jesus Christ so deeply that no earthly power or authority can separate him from that knowledge. The Book of Mormon, the Bible, and the other scriptures, along with the guidance of modern prophets,
provide true standards of conduct. In addition, the gift of the Holy Ghost is available as a sure guide, as the voice of conscience, and as a moral compass. This guiding compass is personal to each of us. It is unerring. It is unfailing. However, we must listen to it in order to steer clear of the shoals which will cause our lives to sink into unhappiness and self-doubt. We need a sure compass because many of the standards, values, vows, and obligations which have helped us preserve our spirituality, our honor, our integrity, our worth, and decency have been little by little assaulted and discarded. I speak, among other values, of the standards of chastity, parental respect, the vows of marriage, the obligations to God, such as Sabbath observance, which have been weakened, if not destroyed. Society has been misled. Thomas R. Rowan, commenting on the lowering of television standards, said, Author and commentator Malcolm Muggeridge once told a story about some frogs who were killed without resistance by being boiled alive in a cauldron of water. Why didn't they resist? Because when they were put in the cauldron, the water was tepid. Then the temperature was raised ever so slightly, and the water was warm, then a tiny bit warmer, then a bit warmer still, and on and on and on. The change was so gradual almost imperceptible, that the frogs accommodated themselves to their new environment until it was too late. The point that Mr. Muggeridge was making was not about frogs, but about us and how we tend to accept evil as long as it is not a shock that is thrust upon us abruptly. We are inclined to accept something morally wrong if it is only a shade more wrong than something we are already accepting." Close quote. The gradual process was foretold by ancient prophets. Nephi tells us that the hearts of the children of men would be stirred up to anger against that which is good, and others will he pacify and lull them away into carnal security, and they will say, Oh, all is well in Zion, yea, Zion prosperous, all is well, and thus the devil cheateth their souls, and leadeth them carefully down to hell. I have always been fascinated that people are led carefully down to hell. Alexander Pope expressed a similar thought concerning the acceptance of evil. Vice is a monster of so frightful mien as to be hated needs but to be seen, yet seen too often, familiar with her face. We first endure, then pity, then embrace. The gift of the Holy Ghost will prompt us to resist temptation by reminding us of the gospel law in the very moment of temptation, said B. H. Roberts. By having the Holy Ghost as one's prompter in the moments of temptation, this law of the gospel may be complied with. I wish to alert young people of this special transcending gift of the Holy Ghost, which is available to all. This comforted is a personage of spirit and a member of the Godhead. The Doctrine and Covenants explains why the Holy Ghost is a personage of spirit. The Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, and the Son also. But the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. Were it not so, the Holy Ghost could not dwell in us. The gift of the Holy Ghost entitles a person who is desirous and worthy to enjoy the power and light of truth of the Holy Ghost. The comforting spirit of the Holy Ghost can abide with us twenty-four hours a day. When we work, when we play, when we rest, its strengthening influence can be with us year in and year out. The sustaining influence can be with us in joy and sorrow, when we rejoice as well as when we grieve. I believe the Spirit of the Holy Ghost is the greatest guarantor of inward peace in our unstable world. 
It can be more mind-expanding and can make us have a better sense of well-being than any chemical or other earthly substance. It will calm nerves. It will breathe peace to our souls. This comforter can be with us as we seek to improve. It can function as a source of revelation to warn us of impending danger and also help us help keep us from making mistakes. It can enhance our natural senses so that we can see more clearly and hear more keenly and remember what we should remember. It is a way of maximizing our happiness. The Spirit of the Holy Ghost will help us work out our insecurities. For instance, it can help us learn to forgive. There comes a time when people must move on, seeking greater things rather than being consumed by the memory of some hurt or injustice. Dwelling constantly on past injuries is by its nature limiting to the Spirit. It does not promote peace. The Holy Ghost will also help us solve crises of faith. The Spirit of the Holy Ghost can be a confirming witness, testifying of heavenly things. Through that Spirit, a strong knowledge distills in one's mind, and one feels all doubt or questions disappear. The Apostle Paul said, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. He added elsewhere that true saints are the temple of the Holy Ghost. I wish to say a word about the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the sealing and ratifying power of the Holy Ghost. To have a covenant or ordinance sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise is a compact through which the inherent blessings will be obtained, provided those seeking the blessings are true and faithful. For example, when the covenant of marriage for time and eternity, the culminating gospel ordinance, is sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, it can literally open the windows of heaven for great blessings to flow to a married couple who seek for those blessings. Through its enjoyment, such marriages can become rich, whole, and sacred. Though each party to the marriage can maintain his or her separate identity, yet together in their covenants they can be like two vines wound in separately around each other. Each thinks of his or her companion before thinking of self. One of the great blessings available through the Holy Spirit of promise is that all our covenants, vows, oaths, performances which we receive through the ordinances and blessings of the gospel are not only confirmed but may be sealed by that Holy Spirit of promise. However, that sealing may be broken by unrighteousness. It is also important to remember that if a person undertakes to receive the sealing blessing by deceit, then the blessing is not sealed, notwithstanding the integrity and authority of the person officiating. To have a covenant or ordinance sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise means that the compact is binding on earth and in heaven. It is always gratifying to hear of prayers being answered and miracles occurring in the lives of those who need them. But what of those noble and faithful souls who receive no miracles, whose prayers are not answered in the way they wish? What is their solace? From whence will their comfort come? Said the Savior of the world, I will not leave you comfortless, I will come unto you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, the Father, will send in my name. In simple terms, the gift of the Holy Ghost is an enhanced spiritual power, permitting those entitled thereto to call upon it to receive a greater knowledge and enjoyment of the influence of deity. In the marvelous experience of Brigham Young in February 1847, when the prophet Joseph appeared to him in a dream or a vision, he pleaded to be reunited with the prophet. Brigham Young asked the prophet if he had a message for the brethren. 
the prophet said, Tell the people to be humble and faithful, and be sure to keep the Spirit of the Lord, and it will lead them right. Be careful and not turn away from the still, small voice. It will teach them what to do and where to go. It will yield the fruits of the kingdom. Tell the brethren to keep their hearts open to conviction so that when the Holy Ghost comes to them, their hearts will be ready to receive it. The prophet further directed Brigham Young as follows. They can tell the Spirit of the Lord from all other spirits. It will whisper peace and joy to their souls. It will take malice, hatred, strife, and all evil from their hearts. And their whole desire will be to do good, bring forth righteousness, and build up the kingdom of God. Close quote. If in this life we cannot live in the presence of the Savior, as did Simon Peter, James, John, Mary, Martha, and the others, then the gift of the Holy Ghost can be our comforter and sure compass. I testify that as we mature spiritually under the guidance of the Holy Ghost, our sense of personal worth, of belonging, and identity increases. I further testify that I would rather have every person enjoy the accompanying spirit of the Holy Ghost than any other association, for they will be led by that spirit to light and truth and pure intelligence which can carry them back into the presence of God. I pray that the promise of the Lord will be fulfilled for each of us, that the Holy Ghost shall be thy constant companion and thy scepter an unchanging scepter of righteousness and truth, and thy dominion shall be an everlasting dominion, and without compulsory means it shall flow unto thee forever and ever. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.